0: I might be the last person who should be tasked with writing this intro essay about Shakespearean religion. Spoiler alert, we are not religious people. And I won't speak for Aiden here because he is much smarter than me on this subject, but I know precious little about the inner workings of any religion, really, even though I did once take a philosophy course from an actual priest. So I don't know what that says about my scholastic aptitude, but there you have it. And I'm not well-versed in any of the theological concerns that would have formed the underpinning of many of Shakespeare's more religiously-minded texts, which is to say most of them, he was writing in a particularly God-fearing time. I don't have any particularly interesting reason for being an atheist, I probably came by it quite naturally. Religion was just never something that my family did. But I suppose that is something rather interesting about religion, that so many people are religious or not because of things entirely outside of their control. Now before you go off to write an angry email to us about this, let me clarify that I don't mean that religious belief can't be arrived at by choice. Not at all, but for the longest time it simply wasn't. You didn't have a choice. Your religion was determined by your birthplace, your family upbringing, the time period in which you were born, and for a lot of people, that is still largely the case today. And that's about as good a segue as I'm capable of because our episode on Shakespeare and religion is going to start with state religions. This is where I began my research because it's the one religious idea on which I have a fairly firm grasp. The Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation instigated within England by a lustful and power-hungry king and carried forward and then backward and then forward again by his three children in rather quick succession. For Shakespeare's countrymen, for whom religion was very nearly the entire point of their existence, this back-and-forth dynastic power struggle playing out in castles and courts very far removed from their daily lives came with very real very personal consequences it's impossible to fathom a scenario in which those consequences wouldn't be felt or seen within at least some of Shakespeare's work so we'll continue looking at the ways in which he and his audiences would have understood the religious scenarios playing out on stage at the globe what do his plays tell us about religious belief and religious morality what questions does it raise about religious truth or even the ability to question religion at all can the plays give us any sense about the devotional practices of the writer himself? Another spoiler alert, probably not, or at least not in the way people want. So, I'm not a religious person, and neither is Aiden. Undoubtedly, Shakespeare was, and it's been fun researching the gulf between where we stand now and where he stood then. Humbling, too. Hamlet may have been right to harangue Horatio. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Learning about the religious context and underpinnings of Shakespeare's plays has shown us both how much more there is to the bard, and his writings, than we'd previously dreamt of.
1: Since brevity is the soul of wit,
0: more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of
1: him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise-breaker, the owner of no one good quality, worthy your lordship's entertained.
0: I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too
1: much, methinks.
0: The course of true love never
1: did run smooth. I'm
0: Eden. I'm Lindsay. And
1: this is the Bixpod.
0: And we are here today to talk about Shakespearean religion.
1: Yes, as you uh, very eloquently summed up for us there. I Lindsay, kind of us... went
0: on a little meandering magical mystery that's, tour there. That but... is
1: that is part of the gig of having a podcast, <laughs> Lindsay. You get to go on your meandering thoughts wherever they take you. I guess that's true. Uh, and no one can stop you except for me, uh, and I would never do that because I am fully supportive of your meandering wherever you need to go.
0: Thanks, um, Aiden.
1: You're welcome. Uh, and this, with this episode, it is going to be down a religious path, and yeah. And we're going to talk about... The context in which in which Shakespeare wrote his plays, um, the history of Christianity up mm. to that point, mm-hmm. and how it kind of impacted his thinking, um, and then we're gonna take a look at the plays themselves and uh, talk a little bit about what we find there in terms of religion. Um, Before and- we get
0: too into it, I thought maybe we'd start off you know, a little lighthearted. Um, I, I did mention in my intro essay that you know we're not particularly religious, but um, Aiden, what's your history with uh, with religion,
1: I don't have any, Lindsay. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs>
0: well, no, I'm 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 not setting you up. Although it is actually a good setup. You are setting up.
1: Yes, uh,
0: <laughs> you do have a bit of a uh, history yes, with religion, with you. do you not?
1: I, I have a slight one, I'd say. I uh, so my parents, uh, my mother was Catholic, my father was. I think Unitarian growing up which if you know anything I think it's the Unitarian Church they're basically like an atheist Hippies. church kind of yeah it's, they're very they're very progressive let's just yeah. put it that way um and my parents decided in there pairing of infinite wisdom that, uh, they would send one child to Catholic school and one child to uh, secular pr- public school. And uh, <laughs> I was the public school one. My brother, uh, of course went to Catholic school and, uh, yeah. So, but for one year, one year, I chose for grade 10 to go to Catholic school because I was looking for something in my life and I went to Catholic school and I thought maybe for a little while, just a tiny it's a bit of time. I may have found it in the Catholic religion. Um, and that didn't last very long, but it, there was a moment there when I when I deeply considered it to be a, an important part of my life.
0: The moment, though, I, I mean, it continued for for a while. When, in in a in a
1: subdued form, I would say. Because yes.
0: when when we first met, yeah, okay, here in comes the setup. Summer yeah, okay. two thousand three, we just graduated grade twelve, so this is a full two years after Aiden's experimental year at <laughs> Archbishop O'Leary High School in Edmonton, Alberta. <laughs> Um, we're on like our first date or second date, and he tells me comes right out like this is not what you should say to a girl on a on a early you date. Don't anyway. like honesty. He says <laughs> I'm thinking about joining the priesthood.
1: Yeah,
0: and I was, yeah, and I was just like, well, this is going nowhere. Clearly, <laughs> how can you be thinking about joining the priesthood? And, and 18 yet- years
1: later, here we are. <laughs> Everything worked out fine with Okay, out fine.
0: and I'm not saying that I like diverted you from the priesthood. That's oh, I don't I, I have think, the power you... of whatever this is. <laughs> I'm gesturing <laughs> You're to just my yourself. face. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's
1: that's our history. Well, that's your the history. Catholic, I mean, the Roman my Catholic church.
0: Like I said, my history was not at all like my family was not religious. No. At all. I think um, my mom was. I think she was baptized Catholic. Yeah. It's really weird because my grandmother grew up in <laughs> This in is just Quebec. biography with yes, the now, it's by the way. Yeah, it is, but it's fun. <laughs> um, grew up in Quebec to a French-speaking mother, French-speaking father, yep. English-speaking mother, yep. and were Anglican. And my grandfather grew up in small-town Alberta and was raised hardcore French Catholic. Yep. Like, totally not what you would expect from...
1: Yeah, they were basically in this Because, yeah, G- Quebec is very Catholic. Yes. Historically, the French yes. brought their Catholicism with them yeah. and stick, stuck around with it to yeah. this day almost. Uh, and then, yeah, Alberta is a little more Protestant-heavy. So, yeah, yeah you, you guys flip the, the books the, on that yeah. one. Yeah.
0: And so that's my mom's side and my dad's side. I think they were uh, Dutch Reform or something like that before they came here. But religion, like church was a thing you did to, like— it, it was just something you did like yeah. it, on Sundays. It was never, it never had any real meaning. It, the religious aspect of my childhood was like, I think there was some kind of belief in God, but it was never my, like a personal belief. I was baptized, but I didn't go to church. I went to, like, went to Sunday, Sunday school. school a couple of times with my yeah. friend, but it was mostly because
1: I you got to, your friend.
0: yeah, I got to hang out at a church and go to Sunday school. Like it really, whatever, it didn't matter. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, and then, yeah philosophy class I, I do remember the moment that i was like god does not exist though yes like, yes we've, we've, yes, we've
1: discussed know. this i think on so, this podcast we may times. have yeah. so
0: so i mean that's kind of a roundabout way of getting to the point the, the, there my, was a point my intro was- my intro was kind of getting to that point that this is kind of a we're, we're in a unique place in history that we have some religious choice right that people didn't really choose their religion's up until fairly recently, right?
1: Well, I mean, and this Shakespeare's era was the era of the the Thirty Years' War. It was, (laughs) in Europe, in a couple of years, there was going to be gigantic warfare that, Mm -hmm. you know, killed a quarter of... Germany's population right. uh, because they were trying to find out how much, where the boundaries of personal religious freedom would right. sit. And they basically didn't. They It was whatever your king believed well, in. Well, and, and 150
0: years later, you have whole colonies being established in the Americas yeah. to get away from religious totalitarianism yeah. um, and start your own religious yeah. totalitarianism. Exactly. State. Yeah, exactly. But, um...
1: <laughs> well, and yeah, it wasn't until the French Revolution really that, you know, freedom of religion was really... Talked about in, in in Europe, so yeah, and the, but
0: again, even till today, yeah. there there hasn't been an openly atheist leader in the United States. I don't think there's been one in Canada. I mean, it, you only have two Catholic presidents, <laughs> uh, presidents yeah. in the United States. I mean, religion is still very much a it's a it's a presence in people's lives and there are still some i don't want to say they're taboos but there are still rules about it that feel like throwbacks to this earlier time period when um yeah religion was much more mandated
1: yeah
0: forced upon you
1: well it was it was it was a central part of people's lives and they really couldn't live without it yeah um from a political standpoint and from a personal standpoint, for a lot of them, I yes. mean, there wasn't there weren't that many competing theories for you know what does it all mean in uh, fifteen ninety eight. So, no,
0: exactly. th-
1: this was just how it was, and uh, that's that's the world. So let's get into that world. Let's let's talk about um, the history of yeah. uh, what you've titled it: a brief history of religion it's in a England. It's two
0: page long, <laughs> but they're all well, not all jot notes, but they're they're pretty jot noty. Lindsay,
1: go right ahead. Sure. I'll jump in with my words of wisdom along the way.
0: Well, yeah. So I mean. Um, Religion, obviously, as a as a concept, there was religion in England in the British Isles going back thousands of years with the uh, Celtic religions and the, the quote-unquote pagan religions that um, would be supplanted by Christianity when the Romans uh, came over and stayed until about the 5th century mm-hmm. or so. So from the 5th century to the Middle Ages, you've got, um, like, everybody in the British Isles was believing in God at some of some description. And if they were Christians, it was... Um, the God the belief system was the same as the Roman Catholic Church mm. under Roman rule um, even though Rome was not a uh, presence in their their daily lives Rome had had the Roman Empire had fallen um, the Pope in Rome was still supreme head of the of everything um, so you have in the Anglo-Saxon times there's a brief period of like, uh, a collapse in Christian teachings in the eastern parts of England um, that lasted until about the 6th or 7th centuries when things kind of got back on track. But then you have the Vikings who invade and then that falls apart a little bit more. And even when it was unified, it was kind of patchwork. Like you had certain kings and, and um, uh, like, local rulers that would have their own way of doing things that would be different from the guy the next town over or the next area over so it wasn't like it was unified under any there wasn't like one great central teaching that didn't come until I think the Norman invasion uh things had started to pick up before then and you had um uh like certain um monastic orders I think had started to uh be part of Especially in like Ireland and things mm-hmm. like that, yep. but um, it in was after. Fact, yes, in
1: fact, I'm gonna jump in. Yeah, here. go for it. Uh, the the way we all speak Latin, well, not all of us, but the ones who had to learn Latin in the 50s and 60s, our parents, uh, yeah. the way they learned it is because um, everyone on the continent was speaking Latin, uh, and those all devolved into the Romance languages. Yes, uh, but the way because everyone on in England was speaking Anglo-Saxon languages. Yeah. Uh, But the church kept speaking uh, kind of derivative form of Latin. Like a dialect. It was a very specific dialect. And when in the, I think it was the 10th century, uh, like Charlemagne's heirs or something like that, brought in someone to uh, settle some religious scores. They were speaking English Latin. (laughs) Everybody else was speaking their own dialect, uh, which had become a romance language. Nobody could understand each other. And they decided, oh, let's, the English are the ones speaking the real Latin, obviously. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So that's why the Latin that everyone speaks now is basically uh, uh, an orphaned uh, Latin.
0: Really? Yes. That's crazy. Yeah,
1: it is. It's. Why nuts. would
0: they have decided that the English Latin was the right? Because Latin? everybody else French did that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Because everybody else was kind of like, oh no, well we speak French now. Oh. So it was it was it was a little bit of a differentiation thing, but also uh, they they figured that theirs was the the original because they'd been kind of kept in a That's in a so in a little funny. vat over in the island. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, it's a crazy crazy story of how Latin oh, came cool. to be. Oh, yeah. cool.
0: No, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, it makes it makes sense, and so. That that definitely would uh, lead into um, some of the conversations we're gonna have about the <laughs> the Latin, the Vulgate, and all yeah, that stuff yeah, that we're yeah, gonna come yeah. at. But um, under the Normans, so 1066, the Normans come over, William the Conqueror, they kind of take over and and set us up for a thousand years of uh, so far British Mm (laughs) rule i guess Mm -hmm. um and you see this expansion of churches and monasteries various religious orders the franciscans the cistercians the augustinians the benedictines um and this kind of spread throughout the middle ages there were uh, a a really big emphasis on things like pilgrimage and crusade in the the, like the high middle ages um so yeah
1: richard the lionheart exactly right i I think i
0: think the second fourth and fifth crusades were really big England yeah. I don't know why those ones
1: well one I think oh no that was the fourth yeah okay I don't know I don't know either it was a big deal
0: but it was a big deal big and deal. that was something that people did to like prove you're you're a, a good Christian right yeah. you're gonna go on pilgrimage to
1: Jerusalem. wherever
0: Jerusalem or
1: and kill some Muslims on um, the way that yeah was, that and, was a big deal yeah. and it
0: was it was the way that you showed how devout you were I yeah. guess yeah yeah uh, so yeah, the the Roman Catholic Church and England were tight. They mm-hmm. were like really good pals until about. I mean, we, we see a little bit of it in the in the 1300s. I think the um, the Black Death does have a big, well, but we'll get there. There were there were some other big events like like the Protestant Reformation was something. It didn't just happen in England, obviously. It didn't even start in England, yeah. um, but it, it kind of had this separate. Like the English Reformation that we're going to talk about specifically here was was um, a, like a really different offshoot of the same thing that was happening on the continent, yes, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it all kind of leads back to the the idea that the Catholic Church was for you know a few hundred years already kind of weakening and and its its power base had had been uh, well, and people, faltering
1: and people were questioning it exactly uh, which, to an extent that nobody had done well. Wow. Except for the Orthodox Church, but yeah, well, yeah. That, that's
0: that's really the first thing that happens that kind of weakens the church. In ten fifty four, the East West Schism happens, mm-hmm. which is when the Greek Eastern Christian churches and the Latin West um, Church that their theologies, the Roman Catholic, yeah. the Roman yeah, Catholic yeah. yes, um, they start to diverge, mm-hmm. and the establishment of the Christian Orthodox Church um, kind of blossoms from there. So this is the first time that you see a split in. Like a real lasting split in the Catholic yeah. Church, yeah. Um, which has persisted to this day. You've got the Orthodox Church, there's a leader of that church. Um, that's different from the Pope. They do not, they are not in communion with one another. No. This is not, they're not related whatsoever. No. So that's a thousand years ago that yeah. that split happened. There was also a separate Western schism, which actually was really interesting. I didn't know about this. It lasted from 1378 to 1417. And it's where bishops in Rome and Avignon in, in France, mm-hmm. and then later in Pisa, all said, we're the actual Pope. Yeah. And so you multiple had, multiple Popes. Yeah. You yeah. had like these, like three cities that each had their own pope, and they had their own allegiances, and it was really all about, um, like there there had been a like Avignon was like a papal enclave. Yes. So and it was really corrupt. There were lots of brothels and stuff. Like it, this this was a this time was the when fun, the this fun was the fun 40 home. popes, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, so yeah, you know it was like the the Vegas of the time, right? <laughs> and you go to Avignon, um but. You know, other people saw that as being, like, a corrupted version of the papacy and a corrupted version of Catholicism. So, like, they would spring up elsewhere. And so, at, for a while there, you had three different popes, really. And depending on where you were um, or who you were, you, your allegiance would be to one of well, them yeah, or another.
1: Yeah, and, of course, this is an ideal chance to, oh, that pope excommunicated me? Yeah, I'm joining I'm up with on. the other guy. The yeah church Yeah, because yeah, he likes me better. So, yeah. I mean, it was really, as is... Most of the case, most of these things, a very politically driven thing. I don't think Absolutely. they did. They, I don't think they did have very much theological differences. Really, it was no. really more about legitimacy of like it, it was, who's yeah. the pope. Yeah, yeah.
0: It was all it was all a political thing, and it it really damaged the the. Yeah. Uh, it was a bad PR move. Let's say for the <laughs> yeah. church.
1: Yeah, it'd be um, like if Coke and New Coke and Coke Zero all said, "We're the only we're real the only Coke. Coke." Yeah, it's gonna damage the brand, guys. Like, yeah, yeah. No, it, but get into a Twitter flame it's, war. It's it'd be terrible, true, like, though,
0: because yeah. that's what happened. And, and you have to remember, this is the 1370s, so it's about 30 years after the the Black Death has mm-hmm. like completely ripped through. Europe Um, Europe entirely and and of course the Black Death was happening in other places and hit other places much harder than Europe but Europe was particularly for our purposes um, the the changes that happened within Europe in the end of feudalism and the way that people started to question their own faith to an extent it's not that they didn't believe in God it's just you know you have
1: well, how could God let something like that happen? Well, yeah, Maybe our leaders are lying to us kind of possibly. Thing, right? And
0: then you see people like you have the flagellants who come in and they're they're having like a personal communion with God as opposed to mm-hmm. these popes and, and the priests and your, your parish priests who are like, you know, it only happens through me, really. Yeah. Um, people start to question that. So to see there be three popes for a while. I, it kind of throws things for yeah, a bit of Yeah,
1: a I mean, yeah, I mean the, the Catholic Church had a lot of uh, legitimacy issues throughout yeah. this period, right into the yeah. 1500s, which is well, when, Lindsay, I'm <laughs> heading to the next bullet. Our, our old
0: pal, Martin Luther. That's right. October 31st, 1517, nailing the Halloween. 95. I know, the 95 Damn. theses on the doors of Wittenberg like uh like the reddit of the day yeah. you would just post, you your, post your your you notices your shit post and yeah and away you go can you imagine if if the 95 theses were just like a massive shit post and he wasn't serious about it and the, but he's like uh, well shit i, think I the have rest to of, his of life did,
1: yeah i think the rest of his life well he was in too
0: deep right <laughs> you know it, it's, it's just like
1: trump running for president right, oh my god i right, got do this okay, now. i gotta
0: do this now balls to the wall or to the door
1: uh but one of the big ones that uh also a huge issue with uh the legitimacy of the Catholic Church was the indulgences issue right which we talked about a little bit before but um,
0: well what were indulgences
1: they, well they were that you buy buy your way out of purgatory or yeah. more likely have someone buy your way out uh because you've are already, already died yeah <laughs> so it was basically you could pay the church uh, and they would basically that would count towards the good works that you had done in your life yeah. and your descendants could give some money to the church and then you'd go to heaven a little there earlier. was
0: there was a specific priest and i can't remember his name but he would go from town to town this is how it was done like you'd go from town to town with your little indulgence chest and you'd set up in some street corner or public square and you would hawk your wares basically and so your wares at this Save time, at basically no seriously turns. he <laughs> had like a rhyme it was like a slogan that this guy would repeat and it had to do with like i can't remember exactly what it was but it's like it's the, the sound of a, of a coin okay. no <laughs> It was going a back coin to the, Diet Coke in the thing. A <laughs> coin dropping, like the sound of a coin dropping into the, the chest releases a soul from heaven. Like and it rhymed and it was yeah, like yeah. this this slogan. And that that's specifically what pissed off a lot of people was like this crass, capitalistic kind of approach to religion. It really was just an excuse for the Pope at the time to make money. Um well, he wanted to rebuild Saint uh, Saint Peter's. Which hadn't been done since the since Constantine, I think, built. Yeah. Right? So it was, you know, how many hundreds of years old Almost by this point? A thousand point?
1: years, yeah. Almost yeah.
0: a thousand years old. Over a thousand years, probably. So yeah, yeah right? So you're You need to you, raise cash. Yeah. How do you do, it? How do, you do you it? Do you sell
1: your what you got? What do you got? Souls. See, it's all markets.
0: So all of this, all of this <laughs> comes to bear in the early 1500s, and uh, and it's it's really interesting. We talk about Martin Luther, um, and it's a great segue into Henry VIII because Henry VIII is kind of the the pivot point for the English reference. He's the guy who started it all, but he began as a very fervent and learned Catholic who became, he was given the the name defender of the faith by the Pope for writing a tract against Martin Luther Mm. defending the seven sacraments. Wow. Yeah. Like he was so Catholic, Catholic, so hardcore Catholic. He was like really against theologically. Right. Right. And this is where the English Reformation veers away from the Reformation on the continent because Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the other reformers on the continent had very, very strong, deep theological misgivings about the direction that the, the Catholic Church, yeah. Church was going in. Yeah. Henry was in it for political reasons. Yes, pure. His was, he was power hungry. He mm-hmm. did not want to cede any power to, to the Pope. And this really kind of became a, a big issue when he, during his marriage to uh, Catherine of Aragon, his first mm-hmm. marriage. Um, but it's not the only, yeah, it's not the only thing that, uh, like, Henry VIII is the guy who, who made it happen, but there was a burgeoning... Uh, Protestant movement in, in England, England already, England yeah. already. Yeah. and it started with the Lollards. So the Lollards from the 14th to the 16th century um, were a, kind of a proto-Protestant group, yeah. initially led by John Wycliffe. So Wycliffe was one of the first, the first people to translate the Vulgate into English. Yeah, I think so. I think um, so. And and a Catholic dissident. So obviously he was. Um, criticizing the church for, among other things, um, not well believing that that the vernacular was the way to deliver God, yes. the the yes. faith yes. to the people. Yep. Um, and I just have a really funny note here. We were talking about etymologies earlier. Do you know where the the, the name Lollard comes from? I do not,
1: Lindsay. Do share?
0: As a Dutch person, I have to I, uh, I have to like this a lot. It comes from the word. I, I'm gonna. Butcher, butcher this completely Lollibroder mm-hmm. uh, a mumbling brother who oh,
1: were yeah, okay. the
0: name was given to a group of people who would go around and during the Black Death and would bury bodies but they would chant over the bodies so they were Bring mumbling brothers dead. not quite like that but <laughs> close right I'm
1: sure that was where they took the inspiration from. <laughs> that's cool okay um,
0: and then even during Henry's reign but separate from Henry's um, aim, I guess, yeah. to, to split. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You had Little Germany. The White Horse Inn in Cambridge was apparently this Ooh. gathering place for all of these people who were talking about and talking Luther about... and that kind of thing. Yeah. So like Thomas Cranmer, the soon-to-be Archbishop of Canterbury, Hugh mm-hmm. Latimer, who would be Bishop of Worcester, William Tyndale, another uh, translator of the of the Bible, Bible Stephen yeah. Gardner, who was the um, Bishop of Winchester, I think, under uh, Edward and Mary. Okay. Edward, the sixth and Mary the first. Um, so all these guys are meeting and talking. So, I mean, it wasn't like they had obviously their theological reasons for, um, pushing for, yeah, pushing for reform. Yeah. yeah. But so the ideas were there. People were already talking about reforming the the Catholic church in England. Henry kind of just took it to the official level. and, Mm -hmm. And this was because, um, as we know, Henry, his first wife was actually his sister-in-law. And Arthur, his brother, died young and after only a couple of years of marriage to Catherine. Catherine was a member of um, the uh, the Spanish royal family. She was a daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, I think.
1: Yeah, that's sex out.
0: And... Um, So, and and related to, I think she was the aunt of Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. So, kind of an important Um, family, but very, 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 very Catholic family. And they they required a papal dispensation to marry because in the Bible, it says that you cannot see your, your lay with your brother's wife, see her naked. That's your brother's nakedness. Your brother's, like it belongs to your brother. So, they needed a papal dispensation to get married in 1509. Um... But by the time, you know, 20 years have gone by and she's given birth to only one surviving child, and it's a girl, yeah. no boys, Henry started to become a little bit dissatisfied with her. His whole reign is relying on, male, on male primogeniture. Mm-hmm. Um, so he starts to look at his marriage to her as sinful and starts to wonder if maybe this shouldn't have happened. So he petitions the Pope to have the marriage annulled and the Pope refuses to do so um, or actually just refuses to even weigh in. I think they, they convened like a... meeting about it and they had to break for the summer recess and he just never came back like the guy (laughs) that that was sent to kind of negotiate this just never came back and it really pissed Henry off yeah of course um and of course by this point he's already got I think he was already had his eyes on Anne Boleyn um who would become his second wife so eventually um 13 no 1531 he Uh, kickstarts this this law Uh, I'm gonna butcher this as well
1: your line's great Lindsay just have
0: Premiuri sure Premiuri that sounds great Um, which was a 14th century law prohibiting the assertion or maintenance of papal jurisdiction or any other foreign jurisdiction or claim of supremacy in England against the supremacy of the monarch so anybody on Mm -hmm. English soil who asserted or had showed any kind of affinity to the Pope Pope in Rome over henry was uh, charged with this preliminary
1: huh. i wonder when they brought that line it's from the 14th, the century. 14th
0: century well no yeah it but i have never it was never really used of course not but right? i wonder
1: who who which of the lords passed that law like that's interesting to me that they would have had the foresight to say oh we shouldn't get too close well, to this the pope, is the because thing. that's a big like, deal it I is mean, a
0: big deal and you've got i wonder I, if there I,
1: were, that was because of the multiple popes they mm-hmm. were like, well, we can't, we can't even agree on which pope's real, so we're just gonna pass a law saying it you don't, might be, you don't have but it also,
0: I mean, you have to think about the English monarchs, um, just generally, and the the monarchs everywhere want to hold on to that power, but the English uh, yeah. monarchs, especially, is you know after, um, Runnymede and all that stuff with the, you know, the Magna Carta, uh, like. You know, they're not going to want to give too much of their power away. And this was really Henry's big thing is that he thought that the decisions should ultimately be his, his, not the Pope's. So 1534 is when he um, passes the act of supremacy, drops the hammer and becomes a supreme ruler on earth of the Church of England. And that was the end of... England's official connection to the Catholic Church for a while. We get, uh, under his son, Edward VI, the Book of Common Prayer is published in 1549. And this was an interesting thing. Aidan and I were talking about this, the differences and similarities between Anglicans and Catholics. And at the time for a while there really wasn't a, a huge amount one. of difference no. because again this was not a theological split this yeah. was not a theological schism this was political yeah. so a lot of the structure was really kept the same yeah but you get people like thomas cranmer who do have theological concerns and starting the to influence yeah, yeah exactly. now you've got this young king on the throne too um in Edward VI, yeah. so you can start to institute some of your changes. So 1549, you get the first edition of the Common Book of Prayer, mm-hmm. and uh, or Book of Common Prayer. Common-, Common
1: Book of Prayer. That's what I thought it was. Book of Common Prayer, I think. Okay.
0: Maybe BCP. I, yeah, either way. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, um, this was the first... But it wasn't a full, total theological shift away from Roman Catholicism. So, it was the first place where the uh, idea that human merit contributed to an individual's salvation, first and foremost, Mm -hmm. sola scriptura—that was the the way to, you know, no no more good works. That wasn't good enough. You had it was just definitely no more
1: indulgences. Yeah,
0: definitely no more. the idea of uh, transubstantiation was removed from the mass, although the name mass and things were retained. Yes, and
1: they still did a Eucharist. It was just they did. They just didn't believe that it was literally the body of Christ.
0: That wasn't quite as enumerated in the first Book yes. of Common Prayer as yeah. it was in the second one. But um, the other interesting thing I saw was that the the daily offices, which were um, kind of a like the The prayers that you would issue or that you would have at certain times of the day, that was how the day was divided, Mm -hmm. was replaced by simply morning and evening prayer. Um, So, yeah, the Hours of the Virgin are gotten rid of. uh, This liturgical devotion to the Virgin Mary... the the psalms the hymns the readings all of that i don't think that
1: made it through because in my grade 10 class we didn't learn about any of that so i'm not surprised that the catholics probably gave this up to it at some point
0: well i think probably in the 60s like yeah (laughs) there you might vatican ii definitely had (laughs) probably had had a thing you know but Mm. this was this was still something that you know is how the day was divided up it's how church bells would ring and you know oh okay it's it's Tursa time, you know, that was the prayer. It's, you know, sure. Prima. This is the the first prayer, prayer of the, the day, day, or day or whatever. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. So
1: just they got rid of a lot of that. Okay. They did. Cool. There
0: were other, um, other things that changed, but a lot of the basic Catholic services were unchanged, like baptisms, um, they, like a lot of those things just kind of remained, like there was mm-hmm. no big change at um, 1553 yeah. when you get the second prayer book that basically got rid of everything that resembled those catholic rites so there was no mention of masses or altars in the eucharist the eucharist itself was split into two separate prayers um and the second part of it was a prayer of thanksgiving it wasn't mm. yeah so interesting and you wouldn't accept the bread and wine it was not literally again this transubstantiation idea was not literally the, the body the and the blood of Christ. It must have loaded 24 7. It was <laughs> where, a little family
1: guy reference, sorry guys. It became
0: a, um, uh, it, you would take it in remembrance of Christ. It was a mm. metaphorical mm. thing. Uh, Catholic vestments were gotten rid of, so the, the chasuble, the stole, the cope, okay. all of these things that a priest would wear are gotten rid of. You yeah. don't have them anymore. And no more sacrificial offerings during mass. And then you finally wait, have, wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. Were they were they slaughtering goats or something? What do you know? I don't
0: know. That's that's. I didn't. I didn't look into that. Again, like <laughs> I said, I'm not. I'm not a religious right. person.
1: I'm, I that I was not aware that was a common Catholic. I wonder practice. if it I, if it
0: was like sacrifices in terms of like uh, like incense and stuff. Is that yeah, a sacrificial offering? Maybe. Like, would that be something? Because they would have do? that
1: thing that they swing around yeah. with the incense, the censer. That's it. Yeah, you know the words
0: only because of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Good point. Perfumed
0: by some unseen censor from the Raven. Okay. 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 Um, The last bit comes a few years later during um, Elizabeth first reign after she is excommunicated in 1571. Um, Wait,
1: she was in the Catholic
0: Church. (laughs) So there was. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. There was. there, There was. There, there was still hope, I guess, that there would be um, some kind of reconciliation because Mary had brought back the, the Catholic, Catholic Church. The Catholic yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Elizabeth... I, Yeah, it just, it, she, because she ascended in 1558, I think, right? Yeah. So for that first 13 years, I would imagine there's talk of who she's going to marry. Is it going to be a Catholic? Catholic. Is this going to be, there was a lot of um, uncertainty there. Like, I'm going to making consolations to the Catholic uh, frenemies that still exist in the land. So, but she was officially excommunicated in 1571. And so the work that her father had started in 1536, uh, with the 10 articles, be- blossoms into the 39 articles, which are basically the underpinnings of the Church of England, right? Okay. And they were these historically defining statements of doctrines and practices that outlined how English Protestants would observe their faith. So the idea that faith alone was all that was required for salvation. They rejected the authority of the Pope entirely. Um, supremacy of the monarch is upheld over all. The seven sure sacraments so. are reduced to two, so just baptism and the Eucharist, or the mm. Lord's Supper, are the only two that are kept. So the, you know, sacrament of marriage, all of these things that are not listed in the Bible, I guess, are uh, gotten rid of. Yeah, is that a phrase gotten rid of?
1: It is now. You've used okay. it like four or five times. So then, go uh, like, well with it,
0: they completely refute transubstantiation mm. at this point. They condemn purgatory, condemn indulgences, condemn the invocation of the saints. Um, so all of this is is kind of written down and codified and passed and becomes the, the basis. Anglican Church. Yeah. Yeah. And to yeah. this day, the those things and the the um like being the this what is it the supreme I, know, I was going to call him Supreme Commander, but that's not the phrase of the of the Church the of England. Of the, the head of the Church of England. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Governor of the Church of England, I think is what they're called. Um, okay. I think that's that's still so the governess. Queen's,
1: OK, because whatever. it's the queen. Thank you very much. Respect her pronouns. Lindsay. <laughs> still, <laughs> still to this day,
0: that is that's still happening yeah. with, the, with the English monarchs. Cool. But there was a lot of flopping. Right. Yeah. Um, this, and this
1: is the big thing for Shakespeare. Yeah, uh, because, because this is heading into his childhood era. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And, and his parents childhood era because mm-hmm. you have, you know, his parents would have been born during the reign of of Henry VIII when Protestantism, Anglicanism is kind of very, very new, it kind of comes to a bit of a full blossom under Edward VI, Um, but then he dies young and Mary the first takes over and it immediately goes back to the old faith. She only reigns for five years before she dies. And then Elizabeth comes back and it's not exactly a time of Catholic persecution the way that it was Protestant persecution under Mary, but there was certainly that fear, especially because this was all kind of, it was still relatively new and there was a lot of power within the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. that Elizabeth and her court would have been very aware of any Catholic plots to assassinate her. So being a Catholic, being a papal supporter, or um, having any kind of affinity for the Pope would have been seen on some level as being. Treasonous, yeah, right, and so yeah. you do see cases where within Shakespeare's own family, um, his mother's—I don't know if it was his mother's brother, or mother's uncle—is um, killed for being a papist. Yeah, um, the Arden family are are notorious papists. They're yeah. they're they're very Catholic family, um, and so and, and this is the same time that Shakespeare's father is. As uh, the the mayor of Stratford, ordering the whitewashing of the churches in uh, shortly after Shakespeare's birth, so a lot of this is fresh in people's minds, and that threat of, you know, not knowing is Elizabeth going to be assassinated? Are we going to have another Catholic on the throne? Like, what should I keep my cross and altar and you know the Virgin Mary, and mm. and should I keep remembering what this is, or should I get rid of it completely? You know, this is a concern for people.
1: Well, and it's also, uh, it's something that isn't gone by the time Shakespeare's dead. Because again, Elizabeth has no heirs. And so who's she going to, who's going to get the crown after this? Is it going to be uh, a Protestant? Because there's relatively few of those uh, Protestant princes and or kings and what have you. Mm -hmm. So uh, it turns out fine for James in the end. But uh, it is, it was still a very you know
0: pertinent question pertinent
1: question at the time and yeah. that that was that weighed on everyone i think and shakespeare was not immune to that uh right through to you know james was only named what a couple of years before elizabeth died
0: maybe even a year before she yeah
1: died so i mean this was died. i mean he's literally writing plays yeah. in this era of uncertainty yeah um and that that definitely shows in well, some and of it, the plays like
0: imagine just for a minute that everything you believe is you know, on the verge any day of having to change. completely change. <laughs> and not only that, but any lapses to the old way of doing things could get you killed. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of fear to strike into the hearts of, of the people. Yeah. That's what I I think is is really important to remember I, when you look at Shakespeare's plays and something that I kind of forget and I think we all kind of forget that there's they a context, around. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that that context is really important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy.
0: Which maybe is a good segue now into the plays themselves. Yeah, so this yeah. Aiden, this was kind of your. Uh, your area that you were going to focus yeah. on a little bit. Yeah, so why don't you take us into it?
1: I, I certainly can. Of course, you had very uh, well-written and detailed notes because you're a well-oriented and detailed person. Uh, I did not have such uh, luck because uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of all over the map. I mean, yeah. there's, there's still to this day... Uh, a lot being written. I, I did many JSTOR searches on, <laughs> on this topic. Yeah. Uh, the viewpoints on Shakespeare's use of religion are as plentiful as there are scholars to think about it. Really. Um, there's a huge diversity in terms of uh, was this line a secret nod to Catholicism? Right. Was it actually a secret nod to Protestantism because <laughs> his characters were Catholic? Uh, it, it gets very murky, very quickly. Um, and, I think it really kind of boils down to... Uh, and this is this is the interesting thing. Uh, we didn't talk about much yet, but was Shakespeare secretly a Catholic? Right. Like, like there's that whole topic. Like, what was Shakespeare's personal religion, uh, religious viewpoint? And I think the plays lend themselves to that question because uh, in all my my quick glance of the available sources is very much that uh, Shakespeare wrote characters. Yeah. And he gave those characters... Uh, background from a combination of things including his own personal mm-hmm. uh, knowledge and personal beliefs most likely as well as what he knew about their historical settings like when he sets a play in ancient Rome uh, they're not swearing to the god although they sometimes do yes. but they they, you know by, it's by Jove you know like right. I came to s- praise Caesar not so there's to. Some,
0: there's, some, there's some historical accuracy yeah. you know not so much with Verona having a port but yeah know,
1: yeah there's he really picked a say well actually Verona having a port is the exact is a perfect example because it's, (laughs) it's wrong. Um, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's what he had to go with. So, so sometimes, you know, like there's a lot of standing in, uh, for what we would call, uh, the Christian God standing in, in terms of like, uh, a a Roman God or something like that, especially, uh, Diana comes up quite a lot for the Virgin Mary. She's kind of like a one to one ratio. So it's almost like,
0: like the characters in these plays are, Within, like, I'm going to confuse this diegetic and non diegetic, but like within the play itself, they're talking to the gods. Yeah. But the understanding from an audience's point of view would be they're talking to the Virgin Mary or they're yeah. talking to a saint. Or yeah.
1: Or, yeah. And, and the, I think this is kind of probably, uh, owing to that common understanding of what the Romans of the time or the pagans or, uh, whatever we haven't gotten to simuline yet. Uh, but you know, like what, what, what the people of that time believed in, um, and transferring it onto what they themselves believed in, in, in Shakespeare's time. And that's kind of the process that kind of gets undertaken throughout the, the, the whole selection of Shakespeare's work. Yes. So, um, there's a couple kind of good examples of this. Um, there's things like uh, like we oh and a great uh, another great podcast yes. better than ours for sure uh, there's, uh Folger unlimited did a uh, Shakespearean yes. religion uh, episode as well uh, they had some great they had a great guest on there uh, dropped some great knowledge bombs One they mentioned was uh, Hamlet's ghost for instance yes and the different ways that uh, interacting with the ghost kind of reveals a, a religious viewpoint of the characters so yes. like uh, first of all Hamlet studying in Wittenberg yes. Very clearly a big nod to Protestantism. Uh so Luther.
0: Like yeah, right there. Literally that's, like, like yeah, it's a, his shorthand for yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So um and the Protestant and Catholic interpretations of what a ghost was very mm-hmm. differently very widely, right? The idea
0: that you would have so by this point, um the Protestant church in England, the Church of England does not believe in purgatory. And yet here's Hamlet looking at his father's ghost, um, who's clearly in some kind of Purgatorial space because he's not in heaven, he's not in hell. And like what is that what does that mean for Hamlet? Is he a Protestant who went to Wittenberg and is, you know, following the teachings of noted Protestant Luther? Mm-hmm. Or is he like interacting with his father's Catholic spirit in a Catholic context? Yes, right? in
1: which he's stuck in purgatory right. and Shakespeare Hamlet has to do something in order yeah, to release him into buy some heaven, indulgences. Right? or kill his uncle Same father diff. yeah so i mean and there's there's examples like that throughout the play or throughout the plays i i wasn't smart enough to really pick out too many more i think but i think there are a lot of of good examples of like shakespeare uh grappling with the theological questions of yes. and the the moral questions of different tenets of of the Christianity that he's been exposed to and that and, are changing and yeah and shifting all, all, all the yes. time and uh, merging them into his plays in a very kind of humanistic way. And yeah. then this is spoiler alert. I think Shakespeare was like my father, like a Unitarian kind yeah. of Christian, like very, very humanist, very progressive kind of leaning because um, he does such a good job. And, and obviously the biggest example of this uh, is Shylock, it's, Mm. it's this religious other par excellence, um, and humanize him in the way that he does. I mean, he ultimately, uh, stabs him in the back, but I think that also raises Christian questions as well. But I feel like that's kind of the approach that Shakespeare has across all the plays. Um, there are many, many scholars as I read throughout my (laughs) readings that Mm -hmm. would disagree. In fact, I think there was a big movement in the nineties and early two thousands. That's when a lot of the articles I found, um, We're talking about kind of reevaluating Shakespeare's religious tendencies and yeah. trying to pin them a little more hard into the Christian dogma yeah. uh, of the time. Yeah. Um. And there's definitely evidence of that throughout the plays. Yeah. But, but I feel like there there is a lot of questioning of that. And, uh, so things like, for example, questioning how Christian are the Christians in Merchant of Venice? Right. If, you know, they're they they can not forgive Shylock. Yeah. They. I mean. Sherlock refuses to forgive Antonio as well.
0: But their Um, forgiveness comes with so many caveats. Well, it's not. But is it
1: forgiveness even? Like, it doesn't seem like it It, it literally takes everything away from him. Uh, There is the thing of like, yes, you saved his soul. But in a Protestant reading, you can't save someone's soul if they don't have that personal connection to God. Exactly. So... You know, it, did they even do that? Yeah. It, would Shakespeare's audience have understood it as, oh yeah, they saved his soul, or was it just literally cruel punishment? So, is *The for Merchant this,
0: of Venice* an anti-Catholic play? Uh, it very well <laughs> might be,
1: right? And this is this is the thing. And yeah. it, again, then there's the then there's the layer of distancing in all of his plays. Of most of his characters were Catholic because right. they were in Italy or they were in France or they, or they were, were English in English. 150 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Every all the history plays. Everybody's Catholic still, so he he has to also thread the line of trying to be historically accurate to their Catholic beliefs, Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a whole suite of authors who think that because of that he was a Catholic because he was showing
0: sensitivity to the old faith, right? Exactly.
1: So so I mean there's there's all these elements at play in all of them, Um, and I think those those non there's only a couple of non-Catholic or non-Christian characters in Christian plays, i.e. non ancient roman non uh you know like
0: you're talking like shylock fellow
1: fellow and and caliban, caliban I think is, is yeah. another really big one and i think all of the those three plays in particular all raise moral mm-hmm. questions about christianity uh because uh with these outsider characters yeah. um that are just central to christianity generally like um yeah who's the more christian the the christians or shylock who yeah. who can't forgive they, neither of them can forgive uh is you know they're not very good christians that way who's the the true savage the slave or the slave master like like In who's the tempest, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah like is caliban really the savage or is someone yes. who owns somebody as property yeah. really more more savage because i mean this was protestantism was For all its many faults, uh was virulently anti slavery because uh it was well, and it gradually turned into more of an anti slavery stance. But it was because you needed to save souls and they needed to give themselves to God. And they can't do that if if they're enslaved. Yeah, if they're enslaved, right? So um and yeah, who for in the case of a fellow, I think is actually the most interesting because it's it's kind of like who's who's the one who's uh is it the convert who brings his? Because he he started off as something else, either yes. Muslim or uh, another religion, and he chose to become Christian yes. in order to join this uh, the Venetian society. And he is in turn uh, a better Christian. The play seems to imply, um, but he's also not because he can't forgive Desdemona. He doesn't yeah. trust her. Like he, it just it's it's typical Shakespeare style in the sense that he just raises all these questions doesn't really answer them, but they're there because the the characters are there.
0: And that's what's interesting about the Othello uh, conversation that we just had was like, yeah, you're right. We don't know what religion Othello was before he converted to Christianity. Um, But that idea that by converting, you're a better Christian Mm -hmm. is something that I think it's Islam that you're given. If you are a convert to Islam, you're like because you made that choice it's like you are you are the best kind of muslim yeah. because you've you've made the choice to follow this mm-hmm. as opposed to being born into it yeah. so it's it's i i don't think that shakespeare had any kind of understanding of islam or anything like that but it is interesting that those kinds of sort of theological questions are present in a play about someone who may potentially belong to a faith that already ascribes to that, mm-hmm. right? All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players.
1: And and there's other examples of, of characters like this and, and situations like this mm-hmm. across plays, especially in the histories. And I have to say, especially Henry VI came to mind as soon as we started yes. talking about this because it is, like we said at the time and we've said many times since, it's a play all about kingship, yeah. but it's also a play about um religion and and the power of god yeah. and uh, again richard II also comes to mind for yes. this one you know like
0: anointing god.
1: anointing yeah anointing power and the source of power um, being God, which was dogma for both Protestant, even more for Protestants than than Catholics, but the idea that God anointed the king mm-hmm. um, and chose the king. And in Henry VI, you have a character who wants nothing more than to serve God. Yeah. And yet, and he's given the kingship and yes. he can't do anything with it. Yeah. And it's taken from him. Yeah. And it raises just, just all sorts of questions about um, the nature of kingship that I think only Shakespeare and playwrights of the time could get away with yeah. because it was wrapped up as a form of entertainment and it didn't yes. it didn't go out and ask those questions it prompted those questions within the, the context of the story like who is who is anointing the king if not god mm-hmm. and then if he's anointed Henry VI king why is he not the king? Like right. you know, and if if he's anointed Richard the second, then why is Richard the second not the king? And how could someone possibly? It's kind take of away? like a
0: sneaky way to get your audience to think about some larger questions without this, actually.
1: Yes, there's like, there's many like this, right? And and clever. I, yeah, another one. A good example is Macbeth, and like how yeah. it's it's really kind of a. a is it about? Forgiveness is about uh, a lack of ability to forgive yourself. Where where is God in that? Why are the witches in there? Like, there's yeah. just the, there's this whole uh, complex of, of things going on all at once. And this is this is Shakespeare's religion. I think it is too messy. Like, I I, I would love to be able to give you some hard firm quotes, but there was a good. <laughs> A little anecdote from my research, Lindsay. Yeah. There was uh, an article I read. It was Shakespeare and Christianity in the late romances. It was talking okay. about Cymbeline and Winter's Tale and all these ones. Um, and then I was reading another one called Shakespeare and Paganism in the late romances. And it was the, from the same author. I didn't realize until <laughs> after I read it, they published like 14 years apart. Yeah. And they had basically opposite kind of viewpoints wow. on the same plays. And I feel like that's kind of a good summary of, of everything because he really could through the medium of the stage um, avoid the tough questions while prompting them at the same time.
0: Yeah, he doesn't have to answer those questions, but he can leave you wondering about them.
1: And I've got a great quote here that kind of sums up my perspective on Mm -hmm. it, and uh, I will cite it in MLA format uh, for the audience on the website. Um, But the quote in full, I'll read it because I really liked it. Whether we come to the theater sharing the author's philosophical premises or uncertainties, The experience of the play is never one in which we sit back and are given an explanation. It is one in which we are forced by our emotional involvement to struggle with a system of belief. Mm. When we leave the theater, it may be with acceptance of the author's morality or with rejection of it. And usually we will leave with the same assumptions with which we arrived. But whether we accept or reject it is of little real importance to the aesthetic experience. What is important Mm -hmm. is that we have struggled. Yeah. And I feel like... (laughs) That, that is kind of Shakespeare's approach to religion in his plays. Um, and I think that's why I get the sense that that was Shakespeare's uh, yeah. approach to religion personally too because it feels like he he does raise these big philosophical and theological questions, doesn't resolve them in many cases um, within the structure of, yeah. of drama. Um, and it... But it, you get the sense that he is struggling with these questions. I yes. feel like that, in itself is a very Protestant kind yes. of approach. I don't think in a purely Catholic country, yeah. Shakespeare a could have existed right because they would have had far more censurous uh, yes. laws about publication. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know, like the printing press and stuff. Helped print English Bibles like that was that's a big reason why the pr- were printing presses was so that you could have yeah. the Book of Common Prayer and yes. stuff dis- distributed right, um, and that filtered down to plays and other mm-hmm. poems and stuff like that. So uh, that that literally makes a big difference, and uh, I think Shakespeare's investigative approach of these characters that he's created or more likely found in a book yes. in a story that someone else has done and he's redoing it to include these mm-hmm. questions of theology uh, throughout throughout the play. And uh, I, yes. I just I think that's yeah. really really uh, a dynamic way of, of, of engaging with the text is to say
0: yeah.
1: he's letting the characters be and he's informing them with everything he can. Part of which is himself, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, if I made it does. any sense throughout this whole thing because no, I've just I been think... talking for twenty minutes. Now. No,
0: it's great. <laughs> and I think it's I think it's especially interesting that you talk about the theater being this place of uh, religious questioning and it, you're right, it, it couldn't have existed in a purely Catholic context, um a literate public is not something that you want if you want to control the methods of dissemination of information, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is what's so interesting about theater because when even when Shakespeare was growing up, the the theater as it existed in his adulthood wasn't a thing yet. There were still traveling morality plays. Mm -hmm. This was still a theater as he understood it as a child was it was a churchy thing and now he's using it to question the church and i think that is again a very protestant yeah thing yeah a very reformist thing Mm -hmm. um yeah so there's i you're right you can't ever answer that full question of what shakespeare's religion was but the closest thing you can get is is through this uh, that understanding that you just laid out of this kind of personal quest for answers
1: yeah and I think that that really informs so much of it because um every play that you step into especially kind of the the, the Roman ones are, are interesting that way because yeah. like We just finished. uh, What's the name? Coriolanus, Mm -hmm. and he has like no Christian morality whatsoever. Right, and yet the play is weighted down with this Christian morality that that um, you have to respect your mother and the the state is all important and stuff like that, which are things that were Roman, but. Um, he only kept some of the things that are Roman, right? Like yeah. he was selective in, in what his imagined Rome looked like.
0: Yeah. So what is he choosing and, and what is he excluding? There's there's a story there. Yeah. And that's, what it, what is he trying to say about that? And one of those big questions uh, throughout all of them is what makes a good leader. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, but that still has a theological connotation yeah. to it too when you've just, you know kick the pope out of your country <laughs> exactly so you don't you have but you might, a be, inviting him back in you might be inviting him back you might be inviting him so you don't know yeah. um but you've got a, a queen on the throne or a king on the throne who is also the head of your church yeah. and are they good leaders and 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 right like yeah, these are yeah, all yeah, yeah, like yeah. big questions to ask and yeah. and you're you're absolutely right i love the way you put that. that um, that the characters are given the space to question the things that likely the author was questioning mm-hmm. or had heard questioned and was giving voice to. Cause he does a, a wonderful job of exposing in different characters, different viewpoints with the same amount of passion. Yeah, it's like the, especially
1: across multiple plays. Sometimes there's right. like he said the exact opposite thing. Five well, yeah, plays you ago, can right? you like, can look
0: at Othello and you can go all the way back to Titus Andronicus and look at Aaron and you yeah. can see like a continuum of the same kind of things, like an yeah. outsider character who is thrust into this role and how they deal with it and the growth in his writing, obviously. You know, takes you different places, but you can you can see a Roman leader in an early play or a Roman leader in a later play, and how their viewpoints can change. And this is the same person ostensibly, unless you you don't believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, which is yeah. But it's still it's an interesting exercise, and it shows um, a a a humanistic understanding of the way that people act and think, and. Again, religion was such a, an important part. It was the most important thing in yeah. your life, soon to be supplanted by money.
1: Well, and, well, and by
0: this time we're we can we're, talk about
1: the religion of money. Later. <laughs> well, we've talked about the economics. We have in talked about the economics of yeah. Shakespeare, yeah. but, but yeah, This is
0: this is um, you know the waning days of the power, the the real central power of the church and religion in people's lives. Um, it still has a tremendous hold on people yeah but it's just these different questions than than what anybody had ever asked before uh yeah and he does it in a really interesting way
1: yeah and i another quote that was really good because it kind of um summed up the example this is from one of the uh visionary christianity that was the title in shakespeare's late romances um and it was talking about how uh shakespeare kind of imbues the romances with Uh, a certain thing so the quote is sometimes Shakespeare in his late romances gives pagan belief especially pagan metaphysical belief a distinctly Catholic flavor Mm. that is to say Catholic as judged or stereotyped by Reformation Protestantism and that's 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 the good summary of how he because he would have these characters in these times of paganism and he, but he would give them Catholicism in order to age them into like they're old or they're old. Just like Cath, Catholicism is old to his yeah. audience. Yeah. Um. But so then, but it's not really Cath, Catholicism. It's an imagined Catholicism from a Protestant point of view. And that's the character we wind up with, right? And right it's it's right. just it's a it's a bastardization of all these things. Because that's what happens in our world when we think when you picture someone from 1740, yeah. If I give you a decade, yeah. you've got a picture in your head yes. of who that person is. If you yes. started writing a story about that person, yeah. you're gonna have your own prejudices and yep. ideas of what that person believed and what they did and what they thought, and they're not gonna be accurate. Um, But they're going to be something. They're going to be based on some understanding of that time. Yeah. Uh, And especially if you know a little bit about that time. And if I told you a place like England or the United States, before it was the United States in 1740s, you're going to, okay, well, they own slaves. And, you know, you'd give them...
0: Tricorn hats. Yeah, exactly.
1: You'd have a picture. Exactly. You'd have something in your brain and that's what you'd work with. And that's what Shakespeare did. And it's it's so... uh, it's invigorating in a sense to know that he was doing the same thing that all writers kind of do is just like mumble together a bit of research and a bit of, uh, personality.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah. And she's it all together. Yeah, and, and
1: maybe a pre-made plot, which is what he worked with most of the time. And, and there he goes. And that, and those are the, the things that he does, but he doesn't shy away from those theological questions.
0: Um, and that, that really fits in nicely with, um, the, the kind of a side note that um, I didn't talk about at the beginning, but um, about Judaism, which is mm-hmm. uh, another religion that is given kind of central focus, I guess, within Shakespeare's plays, mostly because of The Merchant of Venice and um, Shylock being such a seminal character in, yeah. in the Shakespearean canon. So um, at, at this point in time, there were no Jews in England. They had been expelled in, I think, 1290. Um, yeah. They'd been expelled. So there were no Jewish people that Shakespeare or any Englishman really would have had, at least not common people, would have had any connection, um, connection to, yeah. to. Yeah. or knowledge or, or have that. ever yeah. met. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, there were a few Jews who had kind of either slipped through the cracks or had come back in. There was the expulsion of the Jews from. Uh, the Iberian Peninsula and so Mm. there were a lot of Lopez's in London (laughs) and and they were probably Sephardic Jews Uh, um, including the physician to Elizabeth I, Rodrigo uh, Lopez who was likely Jewish or possibly Jewish anyway but uh, so when Shakespeare is crafting a character like Shylock without any first hand knowledge or very very little first hand knowledge of anybody actually Jewish He's not crafting a character that is theologically connected to yeah. a Jewish tradition. He's connecting it to this idea of um, Jewishness that is. Um, I from I watched this video from uh, Yad Vashem, their YouTube channel. They had an interesting talk about anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism yeah. and the difference between the two and how being um, anti. Jewish? Like, Judaic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the word? Yeah. Um, it wasn't about being against them theologically or on any kind of spiritual level. It was like, there are Jewish qualities in everyone mm. that you have to kind uh, of fight against. Quote, unquote, Jewish qualities. Right. Yeah. Okay. And and like, even Christians had like a, a Jewishness in them yeah. that you had to overcome in order to be a good Christian, which was okay. like... The better version of (laughs) Jewish, like it's it's still so strange to say that and i i don't (laughs) like saying that but you know what i mean it's like it's so all the things that shylock is obsessed with like his gold his ducats like the material world that connection to the material world or the other stereotypes about jewish being like you know Um, cleanliness and circumcision and the body Mm. and things like that they're not spiritual concerns they're not things you can take with you when you go to heaven or to the next world so that's something that christians had to overcome shalak isn't able to but it's not jewish in a religious sense it's it's this caricature of jewishness that is like you know, those pagans who become quote unquote Catholic in their, you know, in that way that is a stereotype that the audience would recognize yeah, as a stereotype. Yeah. That's what he's doing to Shiloh. Yeah. So it's not really, the question isn't in the Merchant of Venice, is this anti Semitic? Because it's yeah. not, there was no, he, there was not enough of an understanding of what Judaism was to be that kind of anti Semitic, yeah. to, to like question it in that way. It was more about what Shylock is representing, mm-hmm. which is what any Christian could be if they didn't rise above those Jewish impulses. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's just... Yeah. It's all about those stereotypes yeah. that, that Shakespeare, well, as mean, a writer, is playing with.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, that's most of what anti-Semitism is, too. No, it's, no, no it's you, also You're right. You're right. Absolutely. To this day. But yeah. at the same time, yeah, I get, I get what you're going for because it's like... Um, there was no there was no real connection to it. So it's it's the going back to branding, it's the Judaism that exists in the mind of the public. Yes. And yeah. that is uh the Shylock character. Yeah. Right? It comes it comes to life in this character. Yeah. But it's interesting that in that play, he still says, hath a Jew not eyes. Yeah, and, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like there there's still that, that questioning spirit. Literally, he yeah. asks the question about yeah. am I not human? Yeah. Uh and it's it, that's what Shakespeare brings to the table, yes, religiously. And I think, yes. yeah, you're right, Shylocks and Judaism are a great example because they were the boogeyman of Europe, yeah. And uh, writers love to use them and leverage them. And I think there are a bunch of other uh, Jewish references in the play, like offhand things like um, Hebrew and stuff like that. Like, I think they they make references to, yeah, and, they, and of course, the history of in the Bible and stuff like that. Sure. They pulled they'll pull that out of the out of the uh, Would work as well. They're
0: broad strokes, though. It's not like anybody mm-hmm. sat down with the with the books and and yeah. like were criticizing the Torah or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. Like this is not how yeah. things were. Nobody was doing that. No. This is not. But no. that's not. You're right. That's not how anti-Semitism happens no, today it's,
1: either. It's, it's third. Well, especially in Shakespeare's case, It was probably you know he's he's talking with the Venetian merchants who do deal with Jews mm-hmm. in Venice, mm-hmm. and that's the start of a kickstarts the things. And again, he's working with his own idea of what a Jew is based on his you know 16th century understanding of of that and how it's filtered into the english mindscape
0: and that's just a it's a it's
1: quite a quite an experience and and
0: what makes it even more awful and and whatever, that a hundred and some years later, when Parliament is discussing whether or not to allow Jews back into England, they're using Shylock as yep. an example. Yep. This is this is a Jew. And um, it's just as bad as those awful caricatures that the Nazis were disseminating yeah. during World War II, right? In the up, the run-up to World War II. Mm-hmm.
1: If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickering. This episode's ancient bickerings is going to be a simple question. What is Shakespeare's most religious play? Mm. Um, Lindsay and I we talked about this a little bit before recording, and I think you we both had one answer, and then I came <laughs> up with another one. So I will go first, okay. um, and then you can give the better answer <laughs> to wrap it up because mine's a bit of a stretch. But I will say that I think Richard II
0: oh. has
1: some of the most religious uh, testaments because it is such a meditation on the source of power.
0: Okay, all right,
1: and God's role in that. Um, you know, his whole speech of, you know, uh, I was anointed, you know, he's talking about the oils and all these things. Yes. And when he's offering up the crown to, uh, who gets it from first? Henry the fifth, Henry the sixth. Uh, no, who was it? The Edward? fourth. Henry the fourth. Yes. Uh, when he's, you know, that, that exchange and the, um, the sense that Richard has that he is God's instrument, mm-hmm. um, is Really, and we talked about it many times, you know, this is the thing that starts the War of the Roses, you know, 100 years before the Wars of the Roses really start yeah. is this whole problem of you have a king who's anointed by God and then you just don't like him. So you've taken away God from the equation. What's the what's the outcome of that? And I, th- I feel like Shakespeare very aware that that's the case. Um, because he's already written most of the Wars of the Roses plays, uh, so he's he's kind of aware that this is this is what happens. Yeah, um, and it 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 is the biggest theological question of the day: is it the Pope who makes a king? Mm. Is it God? Is it the king himself? These are the questions of Catholicism and Anglicanism, and <laughs> they they really can't be. Uh, Answered, and I think that's what makes the plays great because Shakespeare doesn't really try and answer them. He just has these characters asking the question, and I think that's 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 been your central thesis
0: the whole whole episode. So
1: I'm gonna stick with it and say uh, that one's the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well. When you when we started this, I thought it would be an easy win for me because it's obviously Measure for Measure. Yeah, Um, I I know. (laughs) The the you know the title itself is taken from the book of Matthew, the book of Mark. Judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Um, (laughs) It's a it's a, a you know. A, a bit of a play a bit on of a it. play yeah. on it yeah. but yeah. but measure for measure it's what you give is what you'll get yeah. and that's that's a pretty um Christian a bit pretty Christian <laughs> tenet right that yeah. you do unto others right yeah. and measure for measure is obviously a play that deals exclusively and those kinds of um judgments are meted out to people who are deserving or not deserving and in various measures are given their um their their due course, I guess, I guess. Yeah. Um, but then you have to come out and, and make this impassioned plea or, you know, this, this, this speech about, you know, the, the nature of power and Christ, like, I <laughs> wait, think, are
1: you swearing or are you saying no, about well, the nature both? of <laughs> Because, well, and I, 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 will say measure for measure is a really good answer because I mean, it's just, it is the, practical application of christianity i think that's the thing like
0: that's what i was going to say when you were talking about how this is like big theological questions i'm like measure for measure is how this is meted out to individuals on a personal daily basis right like how do you when you confess your sins or when you do something bad to another person and they exact revenge on you or whatever the case may be um living a good life and then getting shit on or whatever um it's something that is tangible to the audience, yeah. whereas you know who in the crowd of groundlings <laughs> has ever experienced the being anointed by God, like that does just this doesn't happen. So there's a, there's a, yeah. a distance, a removal from the the religious theological questions yeah. of the day well
1: and I, yeah we didn't talk much about morality of any of these things because the morals of christianity are theoretically right. pretty similar although you know when you get rid of uh, some things like the sacraments and stuff like that to to keep a hold on people's souls it frees them up to do more things right and that that's a whole other thing but i, I agree i also think it's interesting that is an example of um vienna being it was vienna right mm-hmm. that was play. we were set uh Another Catholic yes. city imagined as a Protestant kind of situation. Um, yeah. And that's, that's another example of, of Shakespeare pulling that off. So, um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I no. I, I
0: don't... I think... No, it,
1: mm, no. Can we call it a draw? No. You win. You win.
0: No, I, I... I, You made my argument for me.
1: Yeah, but it was there to be made. And you did it.
0: Yeah, I, but I, I, Richard II is a good answer, too. I, I'm... I'm... I'm going. You know. Are we both surrendering? I think we're both surrendering. We're turning we're, French. We're tying in the grand tradition of Ted Lasso's team. You know, a draw. <laughs> Not something that's acceptable in American football,
1: but. But in Canadian, it's okay.
0: <laughs> in Canadian podcasting, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. And football. And football?
1: I think we have ties.
0: Like in the CFL. In the
1: CFL, I think we allow ties.
0: Really, I don't
1: think they happen very often. But I think you know, they
0: have I I never really considered that you can't have a tie in American until I started watching Ted last. I was like, huh, yeah, I guess that's true.
1: Yeah, Win's why is that? Uh, Americans like a winner and a loser. That's why baseball can go for as many innings as you need until you get a winner. Really? Just don't you remember the one with Tom Selleck where he's playing baseball in Japan and he's like, "There's no ties in baseball." No. I remember there's no, there's crying, no crying, in crying in baseball. I think I conflated that with, with the league the, of their own. The league of their own. But there is Mr. <laughs> baseball is what it's called. Uh, you've never seen that movie? I've never seen that oh movie. Oh my God, that's the next baseball movie we're going to watch. It's <laughs> oh, Mr. No. Baseball. It's Tom Selleck in Japan. It's probably super racist. I don't remember it really well. Um, but yes, he goes and plays baseball in Japan because he's a washed up major leaguer. And, right, right. Uh, yeah, and they have ties in Japan because they value their time more than Americans. It, it, yeah.
0: it, it, baseball really had a moment there in the 80s, didn't it?
1: This is in the 90s. This, this is, is why the 90s? Tom Selleck was washed up in the 90s. This is, wow. I think it was early 90s, but yeah, yeah, it was... It was quite something. So, uh, this is when he was on Friends. Like, this was the Tom Selleck resurgence in the 90s. I shouldn't say So, he wasn't
0: washed smack. up. He no. was on Friends. I spoke too soon. And in Mr. Baseball. And in Mr. A baseball. A movie that I've never heard of. Um, we're going to fix that tonight, Lindsay. Once more, out the breach, dear friends! Once more! Where
1: are we going next, Aiden? Next up on the podcast list is a play which is taking too long to look up on my phone. (laughs) Nice stalling. Uh, But it is coming up. I'll give you a hint.
0: I'm shivering. Oh, it's The Winter's Tale. There you
1: thank go. You, thank you, Lindsay. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, so that one's one of our favorites. Uh, we didn't talk about it much in the, in this episode. It did come up in a lot of my research on, mm. on the specific place because mm-hmm. it has some very Christian overtones. Yeah. And there's also... but there's also
0: Forgiveness. Yeah, and... but
1: there's also witchcraft
0: maybe. Right.
1: And, but is it really witchcraft or is it just she was never dead to begin? There's a whole thing on that. We couldn't yep. talk just about that. And we will uh, in the next episode because that'll definitely be coming up. Um, and then after that, we have one that I'm looking forward to, which is Shakespeare, tourism, and the pilgrimage.
0: Pilgrimage.
1: Yeah, so we're going to be uh, talking about our experiences. I'm sure uh, going to uh, Stratford upon Avon and the Globe and all of that fun stuff. We
0: Trinity Church, which yeah. is still one of the greatest experiences of my <sighs> life. It was so cool. It's up there with with uh, visiting the Casbah Club in, in yeah. Liverpool.
1: Both religious pilgrimage sites. meccas
0: yeah. for different reasons. Yeah. Hey, the literary true. mecca of you know Shakespeare's birthplace and the musical mecca of the Beatles' birthplace. Yep. You know,
1: it's something England's so.
0: got it all, man.
1: Yeah except for access to the eu but anyways uh <laughs> that's it for us uh this episode thank you very much for joining us i uh, hope you uh, learned a thing or two i learned a lot about uh the history Lindsay. thank you for educating me oh yeah uh, you you're know why beyond uh all belief so thank you um,
0: is that religious belief
1: and secular
0: what i don't know, I don't
1: know. Uh.
0: this time i don't know how to end the episode You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix.
1: If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at BixPod.
0: on Facebook at facebook.com slash BixPod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.